This week, the pro-life movement will reach an inflection point. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court will begin hearing oral arguments in the Dobbs v. Jackson women's health case. The decision handed down by the Supreme Court in this case will either spell the end of Roe and deliver the legality of abortion back to the states, or it will uphold the court's decision in 1973. Welcome into the Palmetto Family Matters podcast. I'm Justin Hall. Today, we want to break down the Dobbs case that SCOTUS will hear tomorrow, what brought it forward, what is being argued in the case, how the decision on this case will affect South Carolina, and what does South Carolina look like after Row. I'm joined as always by Mitch Prosser and Dave Wilson. Gentlemen, we have an exciting week ahead of us, but before we get to the Dobbs case, we have to talk about the beginnings of this issue. Let's rewind all the way back to 1973 when the Supreme Court took on a case of Roe versus Wade. It was an abortion case that is very well known, especially within the pro-life movement, especially among conservatives. It is quite ironic that the decision of Roe versus Wade was actually written by Harry Blackman, who had not only been nominated to the U.S. Court of Appeals by Dwight Eisenhower, but had been nominated to the Supreme Court of the United States by Richard Nixon in 1970. What we have here is a moment in time in which Harry Blackman, as an associate justice of the Supreme Court, created a quote-unquote constitutional right of privacy, which then allowed for the federal government under this restriction of abortion, which is not in the Constitution, to then limit what states were capable of doing in limiting abortion in America. He went so far as to join in in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision in the 1990s with Sandra Day O'Connor. In joining in on that, he said he was concerned because it was beginning to strip away some of the limitations that were going to be on the Roe versus Wade decision and begin to dismantle it. This week may be the week that we have a case before the Supreme Court of the United States that this Supreme Court could overturn Roe versus Wade and put the responsibility back into the hands of the states, which in South Carolina, as we'll talk about shortly, is a very important step in saving thousands of lives in our state. So as we look at what's happening over the last few years with a lot of the pro-life legislation that's coming out of states like South Carolina, like Indiana, like Mississippi, I think it's important for us to say that there's so many pieces of legislation that have been signed into law and then either enjoined or upheld like the Texas case that we need to be paying attention to. In fact, in 2018, one of these pieces of legislation was signed into law by the governor of Mississippi, and it was enjoined nearly immediately. And the Dobbs case, as we now refer to it, as Justin mentioned at the top of the show, is a piece of legislation that was signed into law, which questioned and brought into question the idea of viability. And that's a key term for us to understand, because ultimately what Roe versus Wade challenged, and even the Casey case back in 1992 challenged, was this idea of viability. Now, The Dobbs case puts the assertion that viability is measured at 15 weeks of pregnancy. And there are other states that have said that that's when a detectable heartbeat is present, like South Carolina. So let's talk a little bit more about this 
thought or the concept of viability in regard to the Dobbs case and what that means moving forward tomorrow as the Supreme Court of the United States picks that up. Here's what's interesting about the Dobbs case. You have the issue of viability, and that's going to be called into question with this case. This comes down to constitutionality, and I, and I think a, a key point here is, Dave, we've talked about this plenty of times. Roe versus Wade's decision did not enshrine it in the constitutional law. That was a decision by the court. Right, and this is a place where courts have what they call precedent, which is a court decision is going to be supported by a previous court decision, not necessarily upon law. Now, here's the thing. You know, the question about abortion in America really became one that should have and constitutionally is a responsibility of Congress to pass laws. But instead of Congress passing a law on this particular issue, whether to legalize or not legalize abortion, there were cases that were brought before the courts to be able to say that the rights should be given and not given, and eventually it led to Roe versus Wade. When it led to that point, the Supreme Court honestly went beyond its scope and looked at the fact that Congress wasn't doing what Congress should have been doing, which is to legislate the issue at a national level. Why? Because at the state level, state assemblies, state general assemblies, state legislatures have been working on various state legislation to address the abortion issue. What's interesting is this comes down to that 10th Amendment, that if something is not enumerated within the Constitution, it goes to the states. That's going to be one side of the argument. Here's another side that I do want to present just for the sake of transparency. This coming from the Constitutional Accountability Center. They have filed a friend of the court brief in support of Jackson Women's Health Organization. There have been an infinite, seemingly infinite number of friend of the court briefs submitted on both sides. Their brief suggests that the text and history of the 14th Amendment would support not allowing this law to go into effect, saying that the 14th Amendment protects a woman's right to an abortion. Now, the language of the 14th Amendment says the following, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor de- nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. Again, not deprive any person of life. Mitch, you said it. it this this is a this is a perfect storm of constitutional law, constitutional precedent, and norms. I, I want to go back to something Dave just mentioned, and I think it's worth noting, and, and I don't want to spend a long time on this, but maybe we can go back to Dave and Mitch's School of Civics. It's important for us to understand what the three branches of government were set up to do. You have the executive branch, you have the legislative branch, and you have the judicial branch. The Supreme Court of the United States, the highest court in the land, is there to ensure that the laws that the Congress passes are constitutional. 
In fact, if you go back to the framers and their intent for the Supreme Court, do you know where the Supreme Court was held uh, before they had a, a building across the street? It was actually a room inside the Capitol building. In the basement of the right. Capitol building. And it was actually seen as something that is like the place of last resort. Exactly. Because the responsibility was to legislate was put on the legislative branch. Bingo. And that's a, this is a place where you look at our constitution, you look at our form of government, we are designed to actually have a process that slows us down instead of knee-jerk reactions and things that need to be done. So as we look at what the Supreme Court has done, and there's this term thrown out called judicial activism and legislating from the bench, that is a dangerous place for us to be in America. And I think the Dobbs case that will be heard tomorrow, that will begin its hearing tomorrow, is a great place for the Supreme Court of the United States to start getting it right and determining whether or not laws passed by states and then challenged at an appellate and then district court level eventually brought to their court are constitutional or not and not playing this judicial activism or legislation game from the bench itself. And that becomes understanding constitutionally what the responsibility of the Supreme Court is. Now, we talked a minute ago about judicial precedence, which is, hey, listen, we've made a decision on this before. We're going to go back to what we talked about. Is there any place in history where the Supreme Court has gone back through and actually overridden itself? Prime example. Mm-hmm. 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson. Yes. A decision made by the U.S. Supreme Court in which they ruled that racial segregation laws did not violate the Constitution as long as as the facilities for each of them were equal in quality. That's where we get the whole idea of separate but equal. Well, let's fast forward from that to the 1950s. In a 1954 decision, Brown versus the Board of Education, which held that separate but equal is unconstitutional Mm -hmm. in the context of public schools and education facilities, thereby overriding the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. We see that there is a place for this. You look at where Harry Blackman, in his writing and in concurrence or writing in agreement with Sandra Day O'Connor in the Casey case in 1992-93, he also added that this was beginning to the, the unraveling of Roe versus Wade. And that is exactly what we're seeing with the Dobbs case. Now, how does that play into what's going on in South Carolina? South Carolina was the 12th state to pass some form of a heartbeat law. It put the pressure on the on the US Supreme Court to actually say we've got to start to address this issue. So the question becomes why Dobbs versus South Carolina's heartbeat law. One of the reasons why is it begins to break down and understanding the issue of viability. South Carolina's heartbeat law says this. If a heartbeat can be detected, which is as early as six weeks of gestation, then it is the responsibility of the state of South Carolina to protect that life. If Dobbs overrides Roe versus Wade, what does that mean in South Carolina? That means that that law immediately, which was enjoined right after it was signed by Governor McMaster, Mm -hmm. immediately can go into effect, which can bring an end to 
98.5% of all abortions in South Carolina. That is saving the lives of more than 5,000 children per year. That's monumental. That's huge. As I said just a moment ago, we live in the most pro-life generation since Roe v. Wade. I think it's also important for us to understand that no matter what the Supreme Court does in their regard to hearing and their opinion on the Dobbs case, not only should we be working and, and, and fighting so hard to ensure that abortion is illegal in our state and across the United States, we want to make sure that we not only fight in South Carolina and across the United States, to make sure that abortion is illegal at, and and make sure that we are taking care of babies in the womb legally. But we want to make sure that this is something that is societally, morally reprehensible, that no woman would ever conceive of the idea or even think that it was a reasonable option to go to an abortion clinic or have a, a, a pill to take. We want and, and we live in that generation We need to continue to build, as our friends at ADF would say, on these generational wins, fighting daily to make sure that not only in the state house, but in the church house and in your house, in your community, you are making sure that you are fighting to make abortion morally reprehensible. And this is where the Supreme Court has actually set up an opportunity by hearing this case, by choosing to hear this case, to no longer circumvent the people, no longer circumvent the decisions of states. There's a reason why we have political borders in in America. The laws in the state of South Carolina are different than the laws of North Carolina or Georgia or New York or California. How many times have we said on this podcast, (laughs) don't California my Carolina? Because our laws and our rules are are different. That's part of a federalism system, which is not putting the control into a a small group of people in Washington, D.C., but instead allowing the states to serve as, for lack of a better phrase, incubators of ideas Mm -hmm. that begin to percolate and, and work their way up. And then you look and go, okay, what's worked here? What's not worked here? Then we make decisions on a national scale. That was the goal overall in the setup of the U.S. Constitution, in the way that our government and the framers of our Constitution wanted that to happen. That there was going to be a difference between the former colonies, now states, because we are different. We choose to live in different areas. We choose to have different cultures within the communities that we have. And that level of independence is something that very few people understand is a root of the federalism that we have here in the United States of America. And here's what's coming up. So tomorrow we mentioned that the Supreme Court is going to hear the oral arguments of this case. And why is that important? Well, at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, there will be a rally outside of the Supreme Court Family Policy Alliance will be streaming that, but we will be streaming it directly to the Palmetto Family Facebook page. Not only that, but boots on the ground will be flying up to Washington shortly. Justin Justin is getting ready to leave in just a few minutes. I have to catch a flight. The bags are packed. Be flying up to Washington. We'll be on the ground. Not only that, but we'll be uh, meeting with uh, Senator Scott. He's got a roundtable going on tomorrow. A lot of pro-life events going on tomorrow we'll have a 
wrap up at 11.15 on our Facebook page where we will break down the mood of the day because I can certainly think there's one word that would not characterize this movement, and that is unmotivated. This movement is motivated. This is widely considered to be the most pro-life generation since Roe v. Wade was ruled in 1973. No question about it. I think the thing that, you know, I look at it from a standpoint of of concern is we're motivated on our side. Mm Mm-hmm. But the other side is just as motivated. Dogged. But, but absolutely. And they have been, and they have had the wind in their sails mm-hmm. for the last 49 years. They've had so much wind in their sails that it has been the murder of 60 million Americans mm-hmm. or and is, more. And it has become very realistically part of platforms for candidates. Right. right. And and in that, they have taken an issue that and, and made it, and they have re- tried to reframe this as a women's health right issue. Here's the big issue, folks. This is a child health issue. Yes. This is a child in the womb protection issue. I've talked about this issue before. You know, my mother is an A positive blood type. I'm O negative. One drop of her blood while I was in utero would have been the end of me. To have a 100% male inside a 100% female does not make this only a women's health issue. It is a child's health, a child protection issue. And we've got to protect the right and the life of the child because that is a responsibility that we have going back to the founding of this country. And in understanding that, what are we going to be doing with that? How do we as a society, demonstrate the value that we have in each other. When we've turned around and said, just in South Carolina last year, 5,400 of us don't really matter. That's why we exist at Palmetto Family Council. When we say things like, and you've heard it on our podcast, you heard it, I said it a couple podcasts ago, Palmetto family exists to be the cultural guardrails in South Carolina, keeping the forces of evil from driving everything, everything that you care about off of a cliff. We exist to ensure that South Carolina is a state where God is honored, where religious freedom flourishes, families thrive, and life is cherished. That's not just a byline. That's not just something that we say. That's our creed. That's our motto that is our honor and our pledge not just to you but to ourselves that's why we wake up every morning that's why we do what we do whether we're in a senator's office or whether we're on capitol hill at the supreme court or whether we are working tirelessly for you at the state house palmetto family council exists to ensure that we see god honored and life cherished here in South Carolina. That's why we're going to be on the ground. Yep. Justin's going to be leaving for Washington, D.C. shortly. I'm going to be leaving for Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, working with our partnership organizations across the United States to talk about how do we take advantage of what's going on with this case? How do we turn around and use that to expand life after Roe? That's where we're going. What are we looking like? with life after Roe versus Wade, because that is a place in which we then have to start talking about a broader 
pro-life agenda. We've talked about it on here before. If you think about it, we talked about the foster care issue in South Carolina. There are 4,000 children in foster care right now. Nearly 60% of those have been in there for longer than two years. If we now look at a situation where, let's just say we have, instead of the 5,000, let's just say there's only 2,500. If half of those children are born that will no longer be aborted, we have to have family permanence. We need to have policies that are in place that allow for moms and dads to be able to be in a marriage where they can have the support that they need. They have what they need to be able to raise that child. For the single mom who's the dad says, I'm not going to be involved, has what she needs. Where you have the mother who says, listen, I can't take care of a child. And there are adoption options that are available that give that child family permanence. And that mom, a peace of mind that says, I, I did the right thing for my child instead of letting my child die for my convenience. As we said, tomorrow is the inflection point. It is the tipping point, as Dave said, as the Supreme Court will hear the oral arguments here in the Dobbs case. And as we mentioned before, we'll be boots on the ground. So as we said, tomorrow is the inflection point. Wednesday is the inflection point, the tipping point in this discussion. The Supreme Court will begin hearing the oral arguments in the Dobbs case on Wednesday. Palmetto family will be boots on the ground in Washington for the rest of this week. Someone will be in Washington, D.C. representing Palmetto family be flying out of here shortly uh, to cover this on Wednesday. So how can you follow along? Make sure you like and follow Palmetto Family Council on Facebook. We're going to be streaming the rally at 8 a.m. We will also be hosting a recap at 11.15 to kind of put a bow on the morning and what happened and what's going on and setting the stage for what's next as the Supreme Court will be in the process as we're talking of hearing the oral arguments of this case. So make sure you follow us on Facebook. Make sure you follow us on all social media. Again, thank you for subscribing to this podcast and listening to it faithfully each and every week, guys. It is it is just mind-boggling the support that you guys have shown. Again, continue to rate and review the podcast so more people see it. Make sure to download the Palmetto Family Council app. What a better way to stay connected with Palmetto Family than through the app where you can get those push notifications about what's going on. I also want to make you aware, and we want you to be aware of the fact that our partner organizations are also involved in what's going on with this. South Carolina Citizens for Life is actually going to be hosting their Proudly Pro-Life Weekend. That's going to be January 7th and 8th. Their guest speaker, the Attorney General of Mississippi, Lynn Fitch, who will be a part of the oral arguments taking place in Washington, D.C., with this case, with the Dobbs uh, case that's going to be heard in the Supreme Court. She's going to be here in South Carolina at the Proudly Pro-Life Weekend, speaking at the South Carolina Citizens for Life Banquet, as well as the Stand Up for Life Rally in March that will take place on Saturday morning, January 8th, here in Columbia. You need to make plans to be a part of this. It is important that we clearly demonstrate as a state how important these issues are. Your attendance at either the dinner or the rally or both are a very clear sign that this is an important issue that we as conservative, Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians in South Carolina believe in. 
And you being a part of that is a very important part of demonstrating that clearly, not only to us as a congregation of people, but also to our state legislators, letting them know that we're great that we passed a heartbeat bill. We need to look at what can we do beyond that to protect every bit of life. And that is part of why, as Mitch said a moment ago, why we're here. And we want you to be a part of that. I don't believe that anything's by mistake. And I just want to mention that as we head into the Christmas season and we celebrate the birth of a child hmm. yeah. that was born to save us all, we're now having this discussion on tomorrow will be December 1st about saving children and and trying to save their lives. I, I think the the connection there is shouldn't be lost on any of us. It shouldn't be. The reality is we we all know that it it was it was a gift of Jesus Christ that allows us to have a relationship with God to give us true hope. I I'm sad when I think about 60 million Americans losing their lives out of convenience. It wasn't convenient for Jesus. It wasn't easy for Jesus to do what it was that he did. As a matter of fact, he turned around and said just the night before, if there's any other way that we can do this, let this cup pass from me. But he went and he did it anyway. So as we prepare for Christmas, as we prepare for this season that is opening up for us, as we've entered Advent now, as we look at the things that are going on in Washington and here in Columbia, realize this, folks. We're, we're doing this in partnership with you. There have been so many of you who have taken the time to invest in the work that we do. And as we say around here, we don't want your donation. If you want to invest in our work, we're here to bring a return on that investment, a kingdom return on investment, to quote our friend Tony Evans. Because when we think about that, everything that we're doing is so that the gospel can get shared, so that there's a greater opportunity for people to hear about the light and love of Jesus Christ. So as you follow what we do on Facebook, as you download our app, as you listen to these podcasts, share them. Let other people know. And if you're interested in investing in what it is that we do so that we can provide this to you, we would welcome that. You can visit palmettofamily.org. There's a link on there. You can download our app. There's links for investing there as well. But you being a part of this with us, we appreciate everything that you do to make this possible. And one final plug as well, we have a new podcast coming, Candidate Conversations. It's a different style, but as we get closer and closer to 2022, which is just around the corner, only a month away now, and we get into an election cycle, we'll be talking to the candidates here in South Carolina that are running for public office so you get a chance to hear their views on the issues. Again, follow along with us tomorrow. It's going to be an exciting week as we talk about the pro-life issue and how it's really come to an inflection point. Thank you so much for listening to the Palmetto Family Matters podcast today. For Dave Wilson and Mitch Prosser, I am Justin Hall. We will see you in Washington.